to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Catherine Watchworth and David Deerdorf, authors of What's Wrong with My Fruit Garden and also What's Wrong with My Vegetable Garden. And today we're going to be talking about some of the common problems and how to avoid them. Welcome, you folks. Good morning. And tell us a little bit about your background. Well, um, uh, I, I got my doctorate in botany from the University of Washington, and um, uh, but I worked as a plant pathologist uh, on the faculty of the University of Hawaii, and also um, once I joined the faculty of Washington State University here in Washington State, uh, became the advisor to the Master Gardener program in our in our county, and we've been uh, Catherine and I have been teaching Master Gardeners ever since for the last fifteen years. How wonderful! I'm a lifetime master gardener myself, and I used to work for Extension, so I'm very familiar with the program, and it's a wonderful way to get people, um, get the community involved in teaching itself. It, it really is, and then uh, aside from that, uh, Catherine and I have owned, uh, actually we've owned and operated two nurseries uh, in our life together, so... Um, so we have a lot of very practical, hands-on practical experience in gardening and, and uh, nursery management and, and, uh, as well as academic experience. And so you've seen an awful lot of problems in gardens, I'm sure. Lots, yes, because we, uh. we, lived for, we lived for many years in New Mexico, so we've gardened in the desert southwest, and then we lived for 11 years in Hawaii, so we've had gardened in the tropics, and now we're gardening here in the Pacific Northwest. So, um, yeah, we have a lot of experience. <laughs> a, lot, a lot covered. Now tell me how you came to write your book. Oh, well, um, we, um, in working with Master Gardeners uh, here in Washington State, we, we, I used to spend a lot of time in plant clinic with Master Gardeners, uh, which is so much fun, uh, you know, for a plant pathologist to see all the different problems that uh, that people can bring into plant clinic, and you know, because they don't know what the problem is, and so the master gardeners need to identify the problem and recommend a good solution. But a lot of the times, you're sitting there in plant clinic, and the, the client brings a, pl- a plant in, and they don't know the name of the plant, and with traditional uh, sources uh, for pathology, you have to know the name of the plant in order to sure. figure out what the possible uh, pests or diseases might be. So, um, and, and we found ourselves being frustrated by spending two hours of, of everybody's time trying to identify a plant from a fragment of a one uh, dried-up leaf. <laughs> I know it well. You know, the leaf that's been yeah. rattling around in the back of their car for a week. Yeah, or yeah. You know, somebody's pocket, you know, for a week. So, mm-hmm. um, so we decided to write a book. On our first book is called "What's Wrong with My Plant and How Do I Fix It," where you don't need to know the name of the plant. You just need to. So the whole book is based on plant parts, on leaves, or stems, or roots, or flowers. You, all you need is the plant part. You don't have to know the name of the plant, and you can figure out what the problem is. So that's why we wrote What's Wrong With My, what's wrong with my Plant and How Do I Fix It. And, and um, I noticed that with your 
two books, What's Wrong with My Fruit Garden and What's Wrong with My Vegetable Garden, you offer organic solutions. Now, how did you come? I know a lot of university folk are pretty heavy on chemicals, or used to be. There's a big change now to um, organic research. But how did you happen to make the switch? Um, oh, gosh, I made the switch a long, long time ago. Um, uh, for Actually, uh, my uh, nursery that I had in, uh, in Santa Fe in New Mexico, uh, Plants of the Southwest, is a native plant nursery. And um, we made the decision from the beginning with that nursery to be entirely organic in 1977 is when we started that nursery. Um, partly because uh, in my when I was young and foolish, um, I was a backyard rose breeder, and I had about 250 hybrid tea roses. And I was uh, one day I was spraying them for well black spot or rust or powdery mildew, you know, you name it. I was spraying them, mm-hmm. and I was wearing cutoffs. You know, cut-off oh no. And nothing else. I was. I had no shirt on, no shoes and socks, uh, a bare skin everywhere, and I poisoned myself very, very badly with spray oh, drift on my skin. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, um, so yeah. For me, the the decision to go organic was easy after after that. You are very, very lucky, and I'm sure you know that. And for our listeners that don't know that, don't ever do what David did. Uh, we don't lost ever, a very, no. We found a we lost a very fine nurseryman who came in contact with some paraquat years ago, and yeah. died a really horrible death. And like you were, he wasn't. He didn't have all of his proper equipment on. You know, yeah, and, and, and the label tells people what to do. But I think a lot of people just don't read the label. Uh, most people don't read the label. And I've, I've known um, at least four orchid growers in Hawaii who died of liver cancer for similar reasons, you know, that because they don't know. They, they mix up a, a tank mix of something for their orchids uh, in a bucket and then stir it with their bare hands. Oh, my. You know? Yeah. And so, anyhow... Yeah, uh, these these things are they're helpful in the right place, applied in the right way, uh, and managed properly. But uh, for home gardeners, no, no, it it doesn't make sense to put poison on your food. So. Yeah, it, it certainly doesn't to me either. I've been organic since oh, probably nineteen seventy one or so. And so I think good it was for probably- you. It was. It, I think it was Rachel Carson that got me. My my dad was a chemist, so I always grew up being very cautious and you know calculating the cost benefit ratio and all that. But after mm-hmm. reading Silent Spring, I said, "No, I'm just going to stay away from it entirely. I, I can yeah. hurt too many other things besides myself." Absolutely. Um, yeah. Now, one of the things that I a lot of a lot of our listeners may be contemplating is putting in a fruit garden because fruit plants are so are generally can be fairly easy to deal with and there you get a lot of lot healthier food than you can from most grocery stores. So what would you tell people to avoid problems? What are the what are the key things that they need to know if they haven't planted yet? Um for a 
for a fruit garden, especially of, uh, well, trees and, and shrubs, berry bushes, uh, uh, of, of all kinds, um, need, most of them need full sun. I think that preparing the site to provide the, the ideal uh, environment for your, for your fruit plant is probably the most important single step. Um, in developing your fruit, a, a fruit tree needs needs full sun. Uh, the only fruit bearing uh, plant I can think of right off that tolerates some shade is the um, uh, currants. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, currants are are a little bit shade tolerant. They're they're um, more so than anything else. But you know, with raspberries and blackberries and blueberries. You want full sun, and certainly with any fruit tree. So they need they need uh, the maximum amount of light you can provide. They need uh, good, rich, biologically active soil. Um, you know, you want uh, good organic matter, lots of biological activity of, of soil, uh, uh, fungi and bacteria in the soil. Um, so that's important. Uh, and then water management. Um, and of course, the right temperature regime for um, if you. It depends on where you live. For the you know, various fruit trees need a certain amount of winter chilling, and so mm-hmm. you you know you have to have the right uh, winter cold for certain plants. In other words, uh, for example, in Southern California or in Hawaii where we live, uh, you can't grow apple trees. Um, because it's too warm. And so cultivars, you know, different cultivars are important. In, in Southern California, a standard apple that you can grow there is winter banana, uh, but even that won't grow in Hawaii. We, we lived in a, um, we lived uh, for a year or so at, uh, up in a town called Volcano, uh, in Hawaii at, at about 4,000, no, 2,000 feet elevation. And um, the climate there is always cool. It's never hot, but it's never cold. And the previous owner had planted five apple trees there seven years ago. And those five apple trees had maybe two or three leaves on them. Oh, they didn't. They couldn't grow. They didn't die, but they couldn't grow. They could, can't leaf out and they can't flower because... There was not. It wasn't cold enough to overcome winter dormancy. And the Cooperative Extension Service in all states, I think, maintains lists of good cultivars, and they also you can get state weather records and find out um, how much, how many chill hours you're actually getting. I know Georgia has an absolutely wonderful program. I know Washington State does too, and California, and most of the places that I've been to and looked at their websites have the same information. Exactly. Stuff been, yeah. Stuff that has been researched and proven to work well. For example, down here we can grow some of the low chill apples, though we lately we've had enough change in our climate that they tend to leaf out too early. Um, uh-huh. And I know that that's happened quite a bit in some of the northern states in recent years. They get their, the ones that were trying to hedge their bets and getting an early crop. And then, you know, the weather is warm and then it, it, the weather crashes and they freeze and they lose it. But yeah. by and large, extension people, I know from experience, we have, we have um, 
research stations in several points in our state uh, with different temperatures and different altitudes, and it makes a really big difference in the cultivars that they're recommending for each area. Right. I'm yeah, sure it's it that way. It, it does make a, a big difference. And um, so I, I think the thing to pay attention to if you to planting a fruit uh, garden is the things I mentioned is the, the well, the four environmental variables. There's light, temperature, uh, soil, and water. Make sure all four of those that you've got that nailed, and then you can have a successful fruit garden. And it, it doesn't hurt if you have a south-facing slope either, so that you can. So if you live in a place like we do, where we get considerable amount of cold in the winter, um, the cold will flow downhill for you. Yes, that helps a lot. <laughs> We're going to have to take a little break right now, but um, when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about some of the most common questions you've gotten and some of the pests that we're seeing here that I don't know whether you're getting out in the West, but um, we've had a lot of trouble with imported pests. Now, are the imports a big problem for you, too? Oh, imports are a big problem uh, all over the world. Okay. I kind of thought that might be, even though you're in one of the prime states that grows vegetables and fruits for us. But we'll come back um, to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right after this. Quick Steaks, that's Q-U-I-K Steaks, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Steaks, Q-U-I-K Steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Catherine Wadsworth and David Deardorff, authors of several books, including What's Wrong with My Fruit Garden and What's Wrong with My Vegetable Garden. And, um, Catherine, we're going to let you get in on this. I know it's a little bit difficult sometimes when you've got, um, when you can't be in your regular office and be comfortable, but I'd like to know how you and David got together writing the books. Are you the, the writer person in the family? I'm the writer person in the family, yes. And um, I've been writing for, you know, sort of my whole life. Since I was nine, I decided I wanted to be a writer. And um, and, and actually, when David and I very first met was, I can't even remember the year now, 1977, I think. And he and his, uh, his business partner came to my house to landscape my house because they had started the Plants of the Southwest. And we started chatting, and we decided to write together. And at that time, we wrote science fiction. 
<laughs> oh, how interesting. Yeah, that, Can you give us some titles? Well, yes, but, you know, we never had anything published. Uh, we, we wrote a uh, screenplay uh, right off the bat. It was called The Jewel Box Cluster, which is a a um, cluster of stars that you can see from Earth. I guess it's one of the nearest clusters of stars that you can see. And so we imagined this exobiologist and his companions that that traveled to new worlds to see if it was... Um, to see if there was any endangered species there because there was this federation of planets that didn't allow um, development on a, any planet with an endangered species. So, so it was kind of like our little <laughs> environmental program. Right I love right. it. <laughs> I love it. I had a friend, and she and her husband worked for Caltrans, and any time that, that, um, that they wanted to put in a new anything for the trains, uh, they had to go out and make sure that there weren't any um, any endangered wildlife, particularly yes. little frogs and things like that. Right. That, so sounds, that, that sounds fun. And so then you decided to do these books together because David was getting all sorts of, of questions? Well, David, had, you know, his whole career has gotten these questions, what's wrong with my plant? And he found himself always answering, always asking any any client or person that asked him that. He would ask this series of questions every time. Well, you know, did it? Did you just water it? Did you just transplant it? I mean, lots of questions that were always the same. And so one day he came home and he said, I should just write this down. And I said, that's a good idea. <laughs> Save yourself a lot of grief, huh? Well, that and, and you, know, you know, we were looking, we were casting about for a good nonfiction title. We had been writing fiction for years and kind of getting nowhere going to writers' conferences where people were saying, you guys should write nonfiction. And so when he told me this, I said, that's the book we should write. <laughs> and, and it's been very successful because Timber Press has published, did they publish your first one? I know they've got these two. Yes, and they published What's Wrong With My Plan in uh, 2009. And yes, it's been selling well ever since. And, and we're really proud of it because it's a real departure and it's something anybody can use. It's a book that a resource for you know that you don't have to be a plant expert to use it. That's always helpful. And mm-hmm. so your your most recent one that's published so far has been the What's Wrong with My Fruit Garden and and What's Wrong with My Vegetable Garden came in between those two. That's correct. It was What's Wrong with My Plant, What's Wrong with My Vegetable Garden, then What's Wrong with My Fruit Garden, and we've just actually finished just finished writing what's wrong with my house plant oh you must be relieved to get that one <laughs> to the publisher yes <laughs> good. well I, i'm looking forward to it and that's what's wrong with my house plant and is that going to be available for christmas not this year you know they take they take a while so it'll be um 2015 it will come out okay well that's, always that, take the year. And, and do you have plans for something else yet, or are you just re- relaxing and basking? Right now we're relaxing and basking and um, and writing some other, you know, writing up some proposals for some other ideas we have, and and um, we may do some more with Timber. We're, you know, we're always talking with them. What do you need? What should we do? Perhaps a book on orchids. Oh, that would be nice. That would fun. be fun, because... We were both orchid judges and got very involved in orchids for quite a long time. 
I have a couple of friends that are orchid judges, and for folks that are listening that don't know what goes into judging orchids, um, the training is very rigorous. Yeah, it goes on it forever. <laughs> because there are how many how many varieties? I mean, even how, how many species of orchids are there? There, there what species of orchids? Um, Thirteen thousand, I think. So. Thirty thousand. Oh, sorry, thirty thousand. Thirty thousand species, and that doesn't yeah. even include the cultivars. And that orchids are include... orchids seem to be a little promiscuous. They, um, you can cross them in an awful lot of ways. Yes, well, they're one of the plants that do intergeneric um, the breeding, and so you can have, you know, when the breeders have bred things, you can have, you know, eight genera. In the in the name of the plant, it's a, it's very complex and interesting. It is, and it's fun, and it's very tongue tangling too. Yes, it is. <laughs> I've enjoyed hearing about some of your books and, and getting to know a, a writer's perspective on on how you came to do this. Um, most of our listeners, though, are probably itching to get on with um, the plant stuff, the vegetable stuff, yes. the fruit stuff. Yes. So. Uh, I'd like to talk to that, and, then, and hopefully we'll have a chance to get back to more on, on your books and what you're what you're doing um, when we come back. So if David can come back on the phone. I will. You bet. I'm going to hand you back to David, and thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine. I, I really enjoy it. Okay, David, I was going to put you on the spot before I said, what are you... What are, what is the most common question you get besides what is wrong with it? What What are you seeing most when people are bringing oh. things into the plant clinic? Oh, my goodness. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> trying you, to think about you, that. You're not having anything, one in particular. When I worked for Extension um, in the summer season, it was almost always tomato questions. And then as summer, summer would progress a little bit and the peach harvest would come in, it would be, um, why do my peaches just start to get ripe and then turn all brown? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have anything as common like common as that. No, I think the, the most the most common questions that the, that I get are are um, have to do with environmental issues, growing conditions, problems. Um, usually, about maybe seventy five to eighty percent of the problems with uh, with any plant are uh, have to do with growing conditions rather than a pest or a disease. But of course, brown rot is very common in, in uh, peaches, especially here in in our area in the, this uh, humid, uh, cool climate of Western Washington. So brown rot is common, and with tomatoes, uh, tomatoes are the number one plant that people uh, grow in their vegetable gardens. Uh, it's very important. And I'm trying to think of the things that come up. We've had serious issues with blight blight. Uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, this year not so much, but uh, blossom and rot, of course, is always uh, something to think about. Um, but talk, I can't talk to do... me about, talk to me about late blight, because late blight has become endemic here, it seems, on the East Coast. <clears throat> uh, been worse the last couple of years because the, we've had such wet weather, cool, wet springs. So what do you recommend cool. to people? Oh gosh, it's it's um, 
late blight, it's a fungus disease. It's caused by the fungus Phycophthora infestans. It's the same fungus that killed all the potatoes and caused the Irish potato famine, you know, back what was 150 years ago or whenever. Anyway, that fungus in cool, wet weather is uh, it goes very rapidly through potatoes and tomatoes. It's very difficult. If if you're fighting the weather, then it's a difficult proposition. If the weather isn't, uh, you know, if it's warmer and drier, then the fungus is more easy is easier to control. But one of the first things um, people can do is to learn to recognize the late white fungus as you know, early on as possible. So that, What's the first uh, symptom they'll see? The first symptom they'll see is uh, a brown spots on the leaves and on the stems. Um, the shows up probably first on the foliage, and the spots enlarge. They grow, uh, they get bigger fast, like overnight. They'll they'll get much bigger, so you can you can see them if the weather is uh, humid enough. You might start to see uh, white fuzz develop on those brown spots, and um, that white fuzz is is actually conidia. They're spores. There's millions of them in that white fuzz, and they float on the air to cause new infections. So uh, as soon as you see these um, spots show up on the leaves, what you need to do is sanitize the plant, pull those leaves off the plant and put them in a plastic bag and put them in the garbage. So you don't want to compost them. Is there anything that people can use as a preventive? I've seen all sorts of things on the Internet. People are even using uh, bleach and water. Uh, Of course, a lot of people now are using actinovate, which is giving some control. Do you have any other suggestions for people? Um, actinovate is, is probably a good uh, a good control. It's uh, biological. It's an actinomyces fungus uh, that uh, that competes with the uh, late blight fungus and helps to control it. Um, there are other uh, biologicals that people can use uh, to help to to control that. Um, um, I'm, mm, I don't have my um, anyway. So there's um, uh, actinovate is probably a good one. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Sulfur can help to to prevent the um, to prevent it from spreading. Copper certainly can work, um, especially for home gardeners. Yeah, I, there, and there are some commercial sprays that I've seen that include in, an insecticidal soap and the copper spray, too. Do you recommend those or just a regular copper spray? Um, the insecticidal soap is, is uh, uh, well, I, you know, if, it, if all you're dealing with is late blight, then just stick with the copper. Uh, Good, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> Yeah, because you know, because that works specifically against fungus. The soap doesn't have anything to do. I mean, it won't control fungus at all. It, right. it controls insects, but it also, of course, uh, it will kill any insect that it gets coated with it. So that you know, including that your good bugs, including your beneficials. Yeah. 
um, somebody has recommended a product that's new, fairly new to this country called Agrofoss. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it, and uh, it's new to me, too. I, I've not used it. it it's a, um, let's see if I, if I remember, it's, what, it's a salt of phosphoric acid. Um, I, I think I, you're right. But, and so we, it is, uh, go ahead. Um, we, just, we have to take a little break right now, but maybe during the break you can see if you can remember what that other biological is that you were thinking about. We'll be right back after this. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Hello, I'm Ray Bowman, and I'm really looking forward to our new show, Food and Farm, brought to you every Friday at noon on America's Web Radio by FeedstuffsFoodLink.com. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Catherine Wadsworth and David Deerdorf, authors of What's Wrong With My Fruit Garden, What's Wrong With My Vegetable Garden. And right before the break, we were talking about a problem that has become terrible for many gardeners, particularly on the East Coast and also the West Coast, wherever people are experiencing cool and damp conditions, and that's late blight. Um, so, David, we talked about co- using copper as a spray and um, actinovate as a spray. Some people are using actinovate as a soil drench. Is that, have you found that to be effective? Um, it, probably it would work. I have not tried it my, myself, not as a soil drench. Um, but it's a, actinovate is a, is a soil-dwelling fungus. It's an actinomycete. And uh, getting a, a good colonies of established in your garden is probably a very good idea. Uh, that helps because the, the Phytophthora uh, infestans, the late blight fungus itself, also live in the soil. So if your if your Actinomyces is healthy and active in the soil, that will help to prevent the blight fungus from getting established in your garden. Somebody once told me that actinomyces is the smell that you smell when you turn over, you know, when you're going past a newly plowed field. That's, is, that is, is correct. That right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I love that smell. Of course, I, I, grew, a, up in, I grew up in a farming it, area, so that's a wonderful, wonderful smell to me. Yeah, it is a wonderful smell. It, it's a freshly turned earth is, is that, uh, yeah, it's an actinomyces odor. I would certainly rather smell that than late blight, because yeah. when late blight comes in, it smells. If For folks that haven't experienced it yet, 
and I hope you never do, but for folks that haven't, it's if you've ever had a rotten potato in your bag of potatoes, and it's most one of the most horrible smells on earth. I can't imagine what the what the poor Irish folk did when they would go to their cellar and find all their potatoes had turned to mush. Yeah, yeah, and, and just horrible, horrible, horrible smelling. Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention starving to death. That's not too cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you have do you have Asian ambrosia beetles in your part of the country? I don't believe so. I haven't. Uh, uh, I haven't run. We have, certainly have ambrosia beetles. There, there are many different species uh, of ambrosia beetles. Um, you know, they're called various kinds of borers, like shot hole borers, and uh, many others. I don't know how many there are, but the Asian ambrosia beetle is, is probably the newest introduction to our country. It's, uh, to, it's I mean, really the USA. Yes, it's, it's certainly it's, making a mess here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and one of the one of the things that that we seem to be finding here in the southeast with Asian ambrosia beetles is that they're attacking healthy, well-growing plants instead mm-hmm. of just the sick ones. Like a lot of the a lot of the beetles will take advantage of of not so healthy plants, but these are going right through, and they they are just voracious. They they take out everything. We first saw them, I think, on crepe myrtles, and I wouldn't be surprised if they actually came in with some crepe myrtles sometime. Uh, or got passed around that way. But do you have any, any hints for people on controlling them? Well, it, it's, um, that's a difficult one because once the beetles are inside the tree, it's, it's, um, it's very difficult. They're protected by the tree itself, of course, so you can't get at them with, a, with an insecticide and even uh, a systemic insecticide you know, that you might want to use, say, in an ornamental like crepe myrtle. Since the beetle doesn't eat the tissue of the, of the, of the tree, what it eats is the fungus that it brings with it. Um, so and the it, fungus it, that kills the plant. Yes, it, it carries a fungus, an ambrosia fungus, um, with it. And, and uh, she brings it in there, and then the fungus starts to eat the tree, and then the beetle eats the fungus. So wherever they go, they bring that little that little packets of fungus with them. These beetles. And um, so, since the beetle isn't eating the tree, you can't get it. You can't get it with an insecticide. The best thing you can do is to prevent it from getting inside the tree in the first place. And um, with most of the ambrosia beetles, they they attack stressed trees. So the recommendation always has been to give your tree the, the, the best possible growing conditions to keep it as stress-free as possible with, uh, you know, water and light and nutrients, etc. But with these, these new ones, the Asian beetle, um, as you say, they seem to attack perfectly healthy trees that are not stressed. So in, in that case, maybe uh, uh, one of the best things to do is to coat the trunk of the tree or the shrub with something that repels the beetles so that they don't recognize it as a place to burrow in and lay their eggs. Um, and some of the things, I don't have any experience with them, but some of the, the uh, good things that people use is a, a garlic spray, for example, 
spraying garlic on the on the uh, trunk of the tree so that it smells like garlic. It doesn't smell like a, uh, a you know a tree that they want to burrow into. Um, there's that. There's also, I know in California, people use a lot of orange oil, uh, you know, actually made from the rind of, of citrus fruits, oranges. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the oil that's in the orange itself. And that, uh, uh, aside from being a cleaner, it uh, repels a lot of um, insects. So <laughs> garlic, garlic spray, hot, uh, red, uh, hot pepper spray. Orange oil, those are the kinds of things that that might provide some protection in terms of a barrier to prevent the uh, the bug from seeking out your tree. Is is I know that there's hot pepper wax commercially available. Um, are there any citrus products or garlic products that are commercially made that are labeled for use on vegetables? Um, I haven't been out shopping recently. I, I haven't seen it in our local store, but I, I believe there uh, those things are now coming on the market in California. Oh, that's a, that's a good thing to know for our California I, folks. Yeah, I, I think so. And you know, another thing that I think is worth a try, anyhow, is there's a um, uh, well, there's a couple of things. One is there's a there's an organic. Um, there's an organic pyrethrin that mm-hmm. you can use. I think the trade name is called Entrust. I'm not sure about that, but anyway, it's a, it's a pyrethrin. It's organic, and you spray that on the trunk of the tree. And then when the beetle lands on the tree, you know it gets the chemical on it, and uh, and that helps to that it, it will kill it. Um, another organic control I can think of for trees would be to spray it with the um, something called surround it's the, actually the kaolin stuff ka- yeah kaolin clay again that works really well with the uh, uh, fruit flies of all kinds because you coat the fruit with the with this white clay and then the insect doesn't recognize it as fruit anymore and i'm thinking the same thing would apply to the trunk of a tree the ambrosia beetle wouldn't recognize it as as a food source, if it's coated with clay, it, well, it might look a little funky in the landscape, but that's better than. Down here in the south, people did used to white, whitewash all their trees, so yeah. it might not be too much of a stretch. And it certainly it's better than losing um, losing a fig tree, as, as I'm doing, to Asian, Asian ambrosia beetles, or losing so many. I, I just I can't imagine. With the Asian ambrosia beetles, how big a, a number of plants that it attacks. You mentioned um, fr- you mentioned fruit flies. How about um, do you have that two spotted fruit fly, two spotted Drosophila? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, the, the spotted wing Drosophila is uh, is here in the Northwest. Yes, it is, and uh, it does Never. attack. Uh, it gets on grapes and raspberries and uh, blackberries. And the thing that puzzled me about that one when it, they first started talking about is that a lot of fruit flies wait until the fruit is kind of is overripe, and you can avoid them just by keeping the stuff picked because they're not attracted to it. But this little bugger just gets in there and and has a, an ovipositor that's huge. 
It looks mm-hmm. like, and if you look at it under a magnifying glass, it it looks like a, a, a saw and mm-hmm. gets in there even in the good fruit. So you think the kaolin might work for that, huh? That that might. Work. Oh, yeah, it it does. It definitely works. Uh, um, we have uh, here in, the, in our neck of the woods, we've had apple maggots for for a long time, and it's the same thing. It's a spotted winged fly that uh, has an ovipositor that lets it lay its eggs inside an unripe apple, which is, you know, pretty difficult uh, to mm-hmm. manage. But they actually lay their eggs inside the apple, and then the maggots, uh, all flies, the larvae of all flies is a maggot. And uh, it just tunnels through the apple fruit and makes uh, turns the fruit to, uh, uh, well, it's inedible because it's full of maggots. Uh, and the same thing happens with the spotted wing drosophila. It, the little maggots develop inside the berries. And um, and so what works with uh, uh, really well with apples and with cherries is to um, coat the fruit with this clay, and then the fly doesn't recognize it as, a, as you know, as food anymore, as a place to lay eggs. With these larger fruits, like uh, with, with uh, apples and pears and the various kinds of fruit flies, what a lot of people do is uh, enclose the developing fruit in in a uh, little brown paper bag. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that, those in catalogs. Yeah, that works really well to keep the uh, the fruit develops perfectly normally inside the bag. It won't color up as well as it would if it's exposed to the sun. So it doesn't turn red. But it, you know, it develops uh, uh, very nicely, and it's uh, maggot-free. That's always handy because there's. I remember one year when we had maggots in our cherries, and that was the year that even the birds didn't go after them. I thought, oh, finally, I'm going to get a, a nice crop of cherries, and then I realized, and finally, of course, the birds did come in and get them. But it, it was the first year that I was even going to get a good crop of cherries without the birds getting them first. So, oh dear, yeah. you can't win sometimes. Yeah, I think a lot yeah. of. <laughs> But, we, you know, we another, have garden. We have garden failures. We all do, don't we? Yeah, it's no sin. Yes. So, I did want to mention one other thing uh, for these uh, various kinds of fruit flies, including probably the spotted wing uh, Drosophila. Although I'm not certain about it, but they, you know, the the they lay their eggs inside the fruit, and then the maggots develop inside the fruit. And when the maggots are mature, though, they drop to the soil to pupate. So the pupae are in the soil, and then when they're mature, they, the adults emerge, and they fly up and, and mate and lay their eggs in fruit again. So they do spend a portion of their life cycle in the soil, and given that, the beneficial nematodes that you can apply as a soil drench can the nematodes will attack and kill those pupae in the soil. That's a good thing to know. We have to take a little break right now, but I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about some of these beneficials. We'll be right back okay. after this. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory. 
ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Catherine Wadsworth and David Deardorff, authors of What's Wrong With My Fruit Garden and also What's Wrong With My Vegetable Garden and some other books that we talked about. And I'll put the, all of those on our Facebook page so people don't have to worry about, about missing the titles. But, David, right before the break, we were talking about beneficial nematodes, and that's something that I don't think a lot of people know about. They might have heard about beneficial insects, and, of course, they know about ladybugs. Um, but nematodes are something most people think, ooh, ick, that's a terrible thing to have in the garden. Well, they, they are, because so many of the, uh, the, the nematodes are, are pathogenic. There are... There are thousands, if not millions, of different species of nematodes, though, and uh, the one there are some that are very beneficial because they're obligate parasites of insects that live in the soil. Um, and so, I know that uh, the one the nematodes that you can buy, uh, there are <clears throat> there are organic companies that that provide these nematodes at your local garden center. Uh, they come in a box, they're in the, kept in the refrigerator, and then you take them home and mix it with water and sprinkle it on the ground. And if the temperature and moisture is, is right for them, then they'll proliferate and they will seek out and destroy any, any of 200 different species of insects that are living in the soil at that particular time. So, um, so they're very good controls for any insect that spends all or part of its life cycle in the soil. I used a variety of beneficial nematode to take care of the fly problem around my chicken coop one year. It was amazing. It's yeah, it's amazing, and uh, we we uh, often use them here in the Northwest to control the um, uh, the black vine weevil that uh, eats holes in rhododendrons leaves. Um, it's a it's a weevil, but it you know it it lives in the soil. It's a root weevil, and the larvae live in the soil, eating the rhododendron roots, and then the uh, adults come out of the ground at night and crawl up into the bush and eat the leaves. So uh, nematodes are really good control for those guys. 
Is there something that controls rose slug like that? The rose I, fly? Yeah, I'm... That, that, that's another I, one of the pests that's been coming around um, in, in recent years. And I thought that you guys had that out in, in your neck of the woods, too. I think that we do. Um, uh, the, the, the adult, the rose sawfly, um, does it live inside the tissue of the rose or does it live on the surface of the leaves? I don't remember. Um, I, don't, I don't remember myself. It's such a new pest, and of course we don't see them until our roses look like um, stained glass windows. And right. Because they're, the soft larva itself feeds on the underneath side of the leaf, so you don't even see it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, well, that would be something like the, the, you know, do you have pear slugs? No, we, we don't have pear slugs. We, we missed that one, but <laughs> I guess it's good we have and one, bu- one bug that we don't have here. <laughs> Pear slugs is a uh, it is an insect. It's a sawfly larva, uh, just like the the rose sawfly. I'm, I'm sure. And anyway, it looks it's kind of uh, almost black and sort of slimy. The lar- the larva is, and it lives on the surface of the leaves of uh, of pears and apples and rasps away the green tissue, um, making the leaves uh, lace like. And so it sounds a little bit like the rose sawfly. Um, anyway, a good control for that is the um, um, insecticidal soap. That's that's a good thing to know. I, I know a lot of people when they when it first came out, some people were trying um, BT, and of course BT kills caterpillars, and these aren't caterpillars. That's correct. So, so yeah, that didn't yeah. work out for them. And no. that's, I guess, it's probably a good time to recommend to people that if you don't know what you're dealing with, find out before you spray something on it. Yes, exactly right. Uh, uh, it, it's really important to know because uh, some of these sawfly larvae, uh, like the one that gets on um, currants, the current uh, uh, worm, it's a soft, it looks like a caterpillar. But it's actually a sawfly larvae, and BT won't work on it. Do you have that the new plague that is hitting the uh, mid-Atlantic states, the brown marmorated stink bug? I I have I have seen them uh, uh, a lot of them actually in West Virginia, um, but I don't know that we have it out here. Of course, we have our own our own supply of stink bugs. There are lots and lots of different kinds of stink bugs, um, and the bar- brown marmorated is, oh, the newest uh, member of that group in our country. Another in, another non-native that came in to bug us. We've got kudzu well, bugs down here, too. We, yeah, we, <laughs> and they just came in. Fortunately, I understand that for kudzu bugs, there may be a predator that they're still testing to see whether it's going to attack anything else. Um, but but maybe. And can you talk to a little bit about some of the insects that can help us? We talked about the nematodes, and and you said that there's a nematode. There are various nematodes. Are there any of them that are very common, or that do multiple duty, or are they all one host specific? 
The, well, the, the nematodes are, are, have a very broad uh, host range uh, for some 200 insect pests that they, that they help control. But the insects have to be in the soil. Um, so that lets out the uh, brown marmorated stink bugs. Right. They, don't, they don't spend any part of their life cycle in the soil. Uh, also, kudzu bugs, same thing. Um, stink bugs and kudzu bugs, those, those, they're, they're, they're actually true bugs. Um, and the true bugs are different. They kind of look like beetles, but they have semi-membranous wings. And their mouth parts are actually like a hypodermic needle. So all bugs have a, have a hypodermic-like uh, mouth that they, that the, uh, the ones that um, feed on plants stick that, that beak into plants' veins and, and uh, suck the life out of your plants. Um, and so all stink bugs do that, whether it's kudzu bugs or marmorated stink bugs or harlequin bugs or, you know, green stink bugs. They, they all have that same uh, pattern. So that means they don't, they don't chew. They don't chew holes in leaves. They have no possibility of chewing anything. They can only suck through their straw-like mouth. Um, so you can't use any insecticide like, um, uh, like BT, for example, that has to be eaten, has to be chewed up and eaten. Nothing like that will work on stink bugs. What, what will work on them is um, insecticidal soap. Well, we're vacuuming <laughs> and yeah, well, and one of the the nuisance factors of these of these new guys is that they get inside your house, like the like the Asian ladybug, uh, lady beetle. They 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 hibernate inside the walls of your house, and then on warm days in winter, they wake up and come out into your living room by the hundreds. So. Yeah, if they're inside your home, a good thing to do is just suck them up with the vacuum cleaner. Now, you said that the other stink bugs, um, insecticidal soap works for them. Does it work on once their shells are hardened up, or do you have to catch them when they're really young? Oh, it, it, it works on them even when the shells are hard, yeah. It, uh, soap, soap will kill any insect. I used to kill Japanese beetles by holding a pan of soapy water underneath them and shaking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that seemed to work pretty well. But yeah. Our biggest problem with stink bugs here is that stink bugs will stick their little mouth parts into tomatoes, and as they go, they're carrying fungus along with them. So we have lovely tomatoes, and then, we get, of course, we get the stink bug injury that's, um, you know, just from the hitting, Yellow from burn. the damage yeah. that they're making. And then they carry the fungus, too. Yeah. Oh, that. Yeah, that's. Yeah, they do that. Any of those insects that that uh, have that kind of mouth part, like the uh, uh, oh aphids and uh, leaf hoppers. Leaf hoppers are, are terrible as vectors of disease. Uh, viral diseases, bacterial diseases, and fungal diseases are carried by these guys because they're. It's just like a dirty hypodermic needle, you know, spreading disease in humans. That's that's a good comparison. Um, so I know a lot of people haven't didn't used to control leaf hoppers because they didn't seem to be a problem, and now we know that they are. Just like we're having problems with thrips 
carrying tomatoes spotted wilt virus. And thrips, yeah, they, they would do some damage, but unless their presence was very heavy, um, it didn't really make much damage, make much difference. But now that they're carrying tomato spotted wilt virus, um, it's become a terrible problem, at least in parts of the south. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, these insect vectors of, of plant diseases are are a serious issue in in many locations. And uh, and uh, some of the diseases they carry are really are really terrible. <clears throat> yeah, we well, parts of Georgia lost pretty much all their tomato crops several years in a row. Now there are some uh, resistant varieties available, but they, it just came on so fast and and heavy that um they got ahead of everybody yeah yeah it it does and and the important thing of course with a with a virus disease i mean any of the virus diseases that plants get are they're always they're always systemic so it's in it's in the roots the leaves the flowers the the fruits it's it's in the entire plant and it's not curable so the only recourse you have is preventing it, and the only way you can prevent it is by controlling the bug, the insect. That's a good thing for people to know and to take into consideration. We're about to have to wrap, wrap it up here, but I just wanted to remind people again that the books are, and these are great books. They're all full of pictures for people that that don't know what to look at or if, even if you're just curious, even if you don't really have a bad problem in your yard. And I think I'm going to recommend that our extension office get it, get um, these because they are so good um, in helping to identify um, the books are What's Wrong With My Fruit Garden and What's Wrong With My Vegetable Garden. And the first one was What's Wrong With My Plant? Mm-hmm. That's right. it. And, and the upcoming one, the one that you just sent off to the publisher is What's Wrong With My House Plant? That's right. <laughs> Good. Okay. Um, and how can people get hold of um, – well, I guess the best way for people to get information is to contact our county extension office for information on identifying the pests and some controls. We certainly don't yeah. want them bothering – we don't want them bothering you. We want them to buy your book. Um, thank you. So, <laughs> I know. That sounds like a plug, doesn't it? But um, really and truly, these, these are wonderful books. I recommend them to people if you're growing fruit or vegetable at all because David and Catherine take you through how to prevent it as well as what to do when you have it. Um, so thank you very much for being with us, David. And, and I know Catherine's probably sitting there waiting for another chance, and we're running out of time. But thank you so much for being with us. And uh, I will put these links up on our Facebook page, and we'll be back next week talking more gardening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.